Thanks, Nick. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Good. Good to see everyone. It's a beautiful day outside. The AC is cranked in here, which is great. That's not normal. It's usually hot. So, hey, I'm going to take it uh, gladly. Uh, if this is your first time here, I want to welcome you. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're just really glad you've uh, gathered with us this morning to worship and to hear from God's word. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to get into the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, you can open that to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Uh, Luke is the third book in your New Testament, and uh, we'll have a few minutes before we read that. If you want to use your Bible app, that's totally fine, and the verses will be on the screen behind me as well. But, uh, you know, every single person has a moment in their life, unless... I don't know, I guess you're born super rich or royalty or something, where life gets real. And here's what I mean. We all have a moment where the reality of living life on our own without the protection of parents or guardians or something hits us. So maybe that's when you went off to college or graduated from college and all of a sudden you now have to manage your own finances You have to work, you gotta put a roof over your head, you gotta buy your own food, do your own laundry, do all of that stuff, control your own schedule. You have to be responsible for your own life. For some of you, maybe that occurred way earlier in life than you would have desired. That at some point, even maybe as a child or a teenager, you were on your own and you had to figure it out and life got real. Maybe for some of you, you lingered in your parents' home just a little bit too long because you didn't want life to get real. I don't know. Either way, we all have to step out into life and, and face the world on our own at some point. Uh, about a year ago, my, my son had a, a small taste of this reality, and I hesitate to share this story because I, I fear you're going to judge my parenting style, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, but last summer... Uh, before we bought our house here in Herndon, we were renting a townhome right here in the downtown area uh, of Herndon. And it was one of those nights where my son was just throwing an epic temper tantrum. And I don't even remember what it was about. Uh, And so I was trying to talk to my son and, and calm him down and try to figure out what it was that was making him upset. And he screamed in this rage. He screamed, I don't wanna live here anymore. I'm not sleeping here tonight. Keep in mind, my son, he was four years old at the time. I said, oh, really? Well, where are you going to go sleep? And he said, well, I'm not, I don't know. I guess I'm going to sleep outside. And I said, all right, buddy, put your shoes on. And he looked at me with this confused look, and he's like, why? And I said, no, put your shoes on. You're going to sleep outside, right? And he goes, yeah. I said, okay, put your shoes on. Come on, let's go outside. So he, you know, puts his shoes on, and, you know, we walk outside. It's dark. It's about 8.30 p.m., and we walked to downtown Hurt, and I walked to, we walked to a park bench. I said, okay, here we are, lay down. And he looked at me with this like worried face and the scene was actually perfect. Don't judge me too much yet. It, because uh, in the distance, not over us, there were these storm clouds and uh, you couldn't hear the thunder, but you could see the lightning in the clouds, you know, in the distance. And, and he saw that and he's like, uh, you, know, you know, daddy, but it, it's gonna storm outside. And I said, but don't you want to sleep outside on this bench instead of sleeping at home in in your nice warm bed? So at this point, if 
for Leland, my son, things got real, right? I mean, that's that point where you're like, oh. And he looked at me and says, no, I, I want to go back home. And I, and I scooped him up into my arms and I sat on the bench and put him on my lap. And I said to him, Leland, you will always have a warm bed in your daddy's house. No matter how upset you get, no matter how big of a temper tantrum you throw or what you say, you will always have a place in my house. Daddy would never put you in danger. It wasn't an I told you so moment. It was a teaching moment. Because I explained to him that there are people who don't have homes. And actually they sleep on that exact park bench. We've seen them. I wanted him to understand the blessings he has in a, in a home and food on the table and clothes to wear and a mommy and daddy who will always protect him. Because there are so many who don't have those blessings. And I wanted my son to understand the enormity of a blessing it is for him to live in his daddy's house. This morning, we're going to start the second chapter of this long sermon series we're in called King Jesus. And this second chapter we're calling The King Redeems. And I share this story with you because it's a metaphor for the reality that in our sin, we have rejected the blessing that it is to live under the authority and the protection of our heavenly father, our king. Thinking that we know more about his creation than he does. Thinking that we can take better of ourselves than he can take care of us. Thinking that we are better off on our own than submitting our lives to his word and what he has to say. But the truth is, it is so much better to live under the authority and the protection and the love of our heavenly father who is good than to claim our own authority. There is abundant blessing and joy in our Father's house. And there comes a point in the life of every follower of Jesus where they got to come to themselves and realize, just like my four-year-old son who thinks he's better on his own, and, and come back to the Father's house willing to surrender their life to him. And say, I, I've tried to figure it out on my own. I've wandered. I thought I could do this. But I'm, I'm here because I now know that you are good. And it's so much better to live with you over me and protecting me than to be on my own. It's better to live under the authority of our Heavenly Father. It's better Uh, as many of you know, Jesus tells a story that's just like this. It's a story that's kind of like the story with my son. It's a story that every follower of Jesus experiences in one way, shape, or form. It's a story about how we think we are wise when we leave the Father's house. And we have to have this experience where we realize I was really a fool and come back to the Father's house. It's the story 
of the prodigal son found in Luke 15. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this story. It's a parable. And what I want to do is I want to study it with you this morning as we think about the blessing it is to live under our Father's roof with him as king and joyfully following him. And so as we read this parable, we'll also have an opportunity to do a a recap of the series that we've been in so far, the, the first chapter of the series that we've been in. And if you haven't listened to those sermons, I really encourage you to go to our website or podcast and listen to them to get caught up in this series because this is one of those series that builds on itself. But as we've been working through this series, one of the things we've been doing is we've been building a theology. And what we mean by theology is we've been putting together these simple statements that summarize what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves so we can better understand what it means for Jesus to be our king and for us to submit and follow him with every part of our lives. And so as we work through this parable, what I want us to do is I want us to recap what, where we've been so far because what you're gonna see in this parable is that the, one of the people in this parable, the younger son, walks the path that we traced out in the first chapter the chapter that we entitled The King Rejected. And so in your bulletin, you'll notice that uh, on the back side of your sermon notes page, we listed out those statements for you and put a blank a space there for today's statement that we'll get to here a bit later if you wanna write that in. And so let's go to Luke chapter 15 and let's open up this story, let's open up this parable. Remember, a parable we've studied many of them here, is just a fictional story that Jesus tells to make a point. And most of the time, the point that Jesus is trying to make or what he's trying to teach us about is the kingdom of God. So he's telling a story so we could get some vision, some picture in our head of the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what he's doing in this parable. So I'm gonna read for us in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And we're going to go through verse 16 for right now. And Jesus said, so here's the beginning of the parable. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, so he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything." Now, remember what I said, these parables are a fictional story designed to teach us something about the kingdom of God, all right? The kingdom of God is the place where God is king, and everyone in that place submits to God as king and his authority. So in our parable here, we have this father of two sons, and he obviously represents our heavenly father, he represents God himself. And then we have his house and his house, his estate represents the father's kingdom. 
And so if you remember, our first theological statement from our sermon series was this. In love, God created me not to be the center of my story. And we studied the fact that God made each and every one of us as image bearers. We bear his image. That's our purpose. Meaning that our life's purpose is to represent God with everything that we are. To point to him. He's the center of the entire story. He's the center of our story. And so in our parable here, we have two sons living with the father. And this represents this time period of when we're under the father's authority. We are submitted to him. We're in his kingdom, if you will. But our second statement was this. In sin, I have abused God, creation, and others in order to be the center of my story. And when we look at this parable, we get an illustration of this in the younger son. The younger son essentially goes to his father and tells him, that he wants his father's riches, he wants his inheritance, he wants his blessing, but he doesn't want him. Father, I want everything that you have earned, I want everything you've made, I want all of it, give it to me, but I don't want you anymore. He wants to be on his own, under his own authority. And the son takes the riches of his father, and what does he do? He abuses them for himself. It says in wild living, just on pleasure and selfish things. And this is an illustration of the fall of mankind. We want the benefits of God's kingdom and his creation. We just don't want God. We do not want him to be the center. We want to be the center of our own lives. And this is what we see the younger son do. But as we see in the parable, we think we're doing something that is going to contribute to our joy. That's what we think we're doing. But in reality, we're doing the exact opposite, which is our third statement that we studied, which is there is no joy when I'm the center of my story. All of the fun and wild living of the younger son, it was temporary. It ran out, it didn't last, it didn't produce any lasting joy in his life. And what actually ends up happening? He finds himself broken, he's poor. He's in the middle of a famine And he does not know how to provide for himself. He does not have shelter. He has no one that he can look to for help. He's hungry. He has nowhere to go but to take a job feeding pigs. So at this point, just compare the life of this son when he was in his father's house and what we could speculate and imagine how that was in his life now on his own without the Father. And there is no joy when we live this way. God designed us, he created us to need him. I want you to understand that the fact that we need God, that we are dependent on God for our joy, that we need his direction, we need him to reveal himself to us in his word so that we can know what truth is. The fact that we need God to do that, that's not a result of our sinfulness, that's a result of our humanity. 
God designed us to need him, to live in his house under his authority. That's what it means to be human. And this is an inescapable fact, which is why our fourth statement was, God will be the center of my story, whether I like it or not. We cannot change who we are and the purpose that God created us for. And so as we continue in our story here this morning in this parable, we see that the son ends up having the only response that makes sense. Let's continue in the story, verses 17 and 19. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The son finally came to himself and had this realization. Life is not good outside my father's house. Look at me. I'm stuck. I completely blew it. There's nothing that I can do on my own. I'm out of money. I have no food to eat. I'm in the middle of a famine. I have no protection. It's just this feeling of being stuck. And in our fifth statement in our series was this, I am lost. I need help. I am lost. I need help. This is the only response that makes sense for the younger son. This is the only response that makes sense for fallen humanity before a holy God. To humble ourselves, go back to the Father, and confess that what we've done did not work, and we were wrong. And this is what the son was willing to do. Admit, I messed this one up. And there's nothing I can do to recover there's absolutely nothing I can do to make this right. I just have to appeal to my father. Confess what I've done. But the son doesn't just decide to humble himself and ask his father for help. He also realizes that life in his father's house is better. And that was our sixth statement. We talked about this last week which is my heart is sick, I need a new heart. It's that moment that my son had on the park bench. The, the, the son realizes that his heart's desire to be independent from his father was not only wrong, but it was foolish and it leads to death and his father's way and his father's authority and his father's house is so much better. Man, I was wrong. My heart's desire was wrong. And don't we all have moments like this son here where we ignore God's way, give our way a try for a little bit? If you were at our summer Bible study last Wednesday, we're studying through the book of James verse by verse and we just started it, so we're in chapter one and we looked at James chapter one, verse 15. Lisa just read it for us a few minutes ago. I want you to look at this verse. James one, verse 15 says, Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So if you look at it, James gives us a bit of a, a progression here. And one of the things that we see that is, it's not 
a sin to have a desire to sin. But, but something happens, there's this progression that goes from having a, a desire in our heart and, and something happens to turn that into a sin. And it's using this language of giving birth. So it's this desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin. And so the question that I have and the question we wrestled with in our Bible study on Wednesday night was this, well, what, how do you fertilize a desire? So it turns into sin. And what we said is what fertilizes a desire to give birth to sin is the belief that my way is better than God's way. Maybe the belief that my way is more moral than God's way or the belief that my way is gonna be more fun or give me more joy than God's way. Either way, my way is better than God's way. It's that belief in our heart that will join up with a desire and give us permission to act on that desire. So for the younger son, he had this desire for freedom to go spend the money wildly, live on his own. He, 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 he saw all of the inheritance he would receive from his father and he just, man, all these desires on what he could do with that inheritance. But that desire turned into sin when his belief that that would be better than being at his father's house gave him the permission to act on that belief or that desire. And I think we have experiences with that, right? Is it sin to have the desire to, to hoard all of my money to myself and use it for my pleasures alone, kind of like what the younger son did. Is that sin to desire that? Well, the desire itself isn't sin. I think we can relate with that feeling, but does your belief that your way is better than God's way, what, what does that do? Uh, maybe the belief or we view our money as our own and not view it as God's that he's entrusted us with. Or maybe we see our money, we have this belief as a pathway to happiness. Money is actually what will give me joy, not submitting to God and being generous with my money as he commands. And so those beliefs, my way is better than his, joins with the desires and gives me permission to do what I want with it. Or is it a sin to have a sexual desire that goes against God's good and right design? for healthy sexuality between a husband and a wife in that context only? Well, the desire isn't sin, but does the belief that your way is better than God's way, what does that do to the desire? Or maybe there's the belief that God's way is too archaic, it's too limiting, it's too restrictive. And I obviously know better about the design of humanity and creation than he does. So that belief joins with a desire and causes us to sin. Or, or the belief that this will be better than what God tells me to do. Whatever it is, it turns into action. And see, these are just examples of how we have these moments like the younger son where we veer away from God's authority and we're convinced that we know better than he does. And if you look at James 1:15 again, it tells us that desire turns into sin and that sin then brings forth death. That, that in our sin, as we veer away from God's way, we will have a similar experience to this younger son. 
Our sin will not lead us to joy and peace. It will lead us to brokenness, death. And we need to come to ourselves and realize that life is better in the Father's house. He was right all along. All along, his word leads to life. And I thought I was being wise by testing that. My father knows better than I do. And so this is the place that we find the younger son in the parable. He's ready to go back to this father, confess his sin. He has no idea if his father will receive him back. You can see in the text that that the son already assumes that his actions will cause the father to disown him as a son. And maybe his shot at getting back in his father's house is by being a servant. Many times, when we realize we've really messed up, and we've really done some bad things, and we're feeling this guilt and this shame for the sin in our lives, we can have the same assumption about God. We want to return to God. We want to repair the relationship. We want to repent of our sin. But we assume that we've messed up so bad that the only kind of relationship that is possible between us and God is one of master-servant, creditor-debtor. That I got to do something to work this one off. I owe God. I got to pay off the debt. I need to find a way to atone for my sin that I've committed against God. Right, have you ever felt a desire to pray to God, but you stopped yourself because of the guilt that you feel from something in your heart? And, and it's almost like you have this vision of God in your head, and, and this is the vision. It's, it's one of, of God who's saying, oh, Look who's back. Look who decided to pray to me. Isn't that interesting? What are you going to do? Ask for forgiveness again? Let's see how long this one lasts. And you just have this view of God, this picture of God. It's like the younger son as he's headed home to, to, to go and try to repent and try to repair this relationship. He's headed home and, the, and his assumption is his father might be gracious enough to let him into the house, but only as a servant, only as one who has to work it off. And so let's read what happens. The son starts to head home. He's picking it back up in verse 20. And he, the younger son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him, kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
In the same way that I scooped up my son at that park bench and embraced him and told him that I would always protect him and he would always have a place in my house. In the same way that the father ran to the son and celebrated that his son had returned, this is how God, our father in heaven, reacts when we come to him after a period of wandering and rejecting him. This is his attitude. If you're ever coming back to God with feelings of guilt and shame, with a desire to repent, saying to yourself, I am lost, I need help, saying to yourself, my heart is sick, I need a new heart, that's what's on your heart, and you come to him, we gotta look at Luke 15, and we have to understand, this is the image that the scripture wants you to have of your father. If you're gonna play a video in your head of what's going on when you come back to the Father, this is the one you need to play. God created us to be in his house, to live according to his ways. He wants us there. So here's what I want us to understand this morning. And this is our theological statement for the morning. If you, you can write this into your notes if you want. It's this. God is eager to restore me to his kingdom. Will you say that out loud with me? It's on the screen. Say it. God is eager to restore me to his kingdom. Not as a servant. Not as someone who needs to work off their debt. As a son. As a daughter. As an image bearer. And our heavenly father is eager to restore us into his kingdom because he has sent his son, Jesus, to come after us, to take upon himself the debt of sin that we have built up against God, to pay for it and pay it off completely through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And because Jesus has done this for us, when we return to the Father, he's not angry. He's not frustrated. He doesn't have a grudge against us. He's not annoyed. He's not counting how many times you've done this. Because all of that debt, all of that sin went upon Jesus on the cross into the grave, paid off with his life, and Jesus rises from the grave declaring it is paid in full. It will not be counted against you any longer. And so for the remainder of chapter two in this series, we're gonna be studying this, getting into that. How is Jesus able to accomplish our redemption? And what does that mean for how we live our life now? That's what we're gonna be studying. But we're not done with the parable yet. In fact, we may not have even gotten to the main point of the parable yet. We didn't talk about the context uh, before, but if you go all the way to Luke chapter 15, verse one, you'll read who Jesus is telling this parable to, the context of it all. And what you read is that he's telling this story to the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes. And what prompted Jesus to tell this parable is the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, they grumbled often, but they were grumbling that Jesus was interacting with sinners. 
tax collectors and sinners, that these tax collectors and sinners were following Jesus, were listening to his teaching, and they grumbled. They were filled with all this self-righteousness and pride over how religious they were and how well they followed the law and their knowledge of the scriptures and all of these things. And so they saw themselves as the only ones who were worthy of God. And all these sinners, these dirty people, these tax collectors, they're, they're not worthy. And, and so Jesus tells this parable to illustrate that God is eager to restore sinners into the kingdom if they'll return to him. And so Jesus isn't done with the story. Let's pick it back up. Luke 15, starting verse 25 through verse 32. So parties happening in the house. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your Father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The imagery here is, is striking. The story ends with the younger son who had sinned in all these like demonstrable crazy ways. All right, he's the rebel. The story ends with this younger son. He had repented and he's inside the house having a party. But the older son who never strayed away from the house is outside. Remember what the house represents. The house represents the kingdom of God. One son is in the kingdom, one son is not. In fact, it says the older son refused to go in. It says the older son came near to the house, the kingdom, and heard the partying. He heard the sounds of the kingdom and he was angry. Remember who Jesus is telling this parable to. It's the religious elite. The people who thought that their works and their ability to follow the law qualified them for the kingdom of God. In fact, no, it's not qualified. They thought that their works, how they followed the law, their knowledge, all of that stuff, their religion, all of that entitled them to the kingdom of God. Just like the older son who felt he was entitled to the young calf. So he could go celebrate with his friends. So I could go do what I want. 
See, although the older son didn't reject his father and his father's ways in the same exact demonstrable way that the younger son did, he still had the same heart. A heart that abused his father to make himself the center of the story. A heart that needed to have the same moment as the younger son where he comes to himself and realizes that his ways are not the same as his father's ways. And so here's what I want us to leave here today thinking about. We're all familiar with the younger son's testimony. Maybe that's your testimony. You lived your life in such a way where you just rebelled spectacularly, right? And it's demonstrable and you were just a guy going off the deep end and then something happened. You came to Christ, he came in, he forgave you, changed your life and now everything has changed. And that might be your testimony. Some of it, some of you I know, that is your testimony. Praise God for that. But many of us probably fit the profile of the older son. We see ourselves as Christians. We don't rebel in these demonstrable ways. We don't do crazy big sins. But there are these subtle areas in our life where we believe that our way is better than God's way. And because I don't live my life like the younger son, because I don't live my life in all these demonstrable, sinful, rebellious types of ways, my conscience is okay with it. My conscience is okay with these little pet sins because I'm not the younger son. It could be something as simple as having a relationship with the local church as a consumer and not a family member. God has called you to be involved in a local church of believers, follow him together, because we're not independent, to, to reach our neighbors together. He's commanded us not to neglect gathering together regularly so we can encourage one another. But I think many in the church today prefer to have a relationship with a church that is subservient to the rest of life. A, a relationship with a church where I can be served here, but I'm not obligated to serve. I think that's sin. I don't think that's God's way when it comes to how we should be involved in the church, but we don't feel conviction because we don't sin like the younger brother does. It could be something as simple as allowing your marriage to slip into mediocrity, being okay with road rage, occasional gossip with your friends. I don't know, we all have our little pet things. It's okay because we're not the younger brother. But it's the same heart. A heart that doesn't allow God to be the center of everything in your life. And we need forgiveness just as much as the younger brother. And so regardless this morning, if you identify more with the younger brother or the older brother, I want you to know that your father in heaven, for both of the brothers, the father in heaven is eager to restore you into the kingdom. The father ran out to the younger brother to restore him. He was looking on the horizon, waiting for him to return. And he was eager to restore the younger brother in. But don't also miss that the father came outside of the party to entreat the older brother to come in. He's eager to restore us to the kingdom. And what we're gonna be talking about through this second chapter of the sermon series is what it means to be restored to the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to come before God, have our sins forgiven, 
be given a new heart and now called to live a different life with Jesus as king. According to the ways of his house, his kingdom, not according to our ways. Living a life where we always want to be growing. And we live under the grace of the Father so that enables us to be willing to confess areas that need to change without fear, without guilt, without shame, because we live under the cross. That's what we're gonna be digging into in this second chapter. What does it mean for Jesus to be king? For us not just to say, hey, Jesus, I want all the benefits that you bring me, but I don't want you. No, we wanna, we wanna follow Jesus as the center of our entire lives. And so this week, just as we close this, my, my encouragement to you is to meditate on this picture of the Father, one who is eager to restore you, eager to grow you, eager to show you grace and mercy, a Father who runs out to you when you are far off, and a Father that comes out to the yard and entreats you back in when you are straying. He's eager to restore you into the kingdom. You don't have to fear. You don't have to fear confessing. You don't have to fear being exposed. You don't have to fear to say, saying, I, I've gotten it wrong. I messed up. Because he's eager to restore us. We have a God who is good and he's after our joy. And you guys know that's the vision of our church. We wanna be a church where all people can find joy in Jesus and we believe there is everlasting joy when he's king over every area of our life. Let's pray. God, my story is one of being an older brother. Grew up in a faithful home. Grew up being taught your scriptures. Grew up always calling myself a Christian. And yet, like the older brother, Lord, I felt entitled to your blessings. And God, I'm so grateful that you stepped outside the party for a bit to entreat me back in. I'm so grateful, God, that no matter where we fall on this spectrum of sin and rebellion and rejecting you, whether we're like the younger brother and we sin in these demonstrable ways or the older brother and it's more inside our heart and it's concealed, Lord, no matter what it is, you know, no matter what it is, you're aware. We've all strayed from you. And Lord, you are eager to restore each and every one of us back to your kingdom. And we know that, Lord, because you sent your son Jesus after us to forgive us of our sin, to give us righteousness to make us worthy, Lord. So as Hebrews says, we can come before you boldly before the throne of grace. So God, I pray if there's anyone in the room here that just needs 
to have a new vision of you in their head, in their heart, a new picture, not of a angry father who's annoyed, but of a loving father who's eager. Pray, Lord, by your spirit, you would do that right now. If there's an image of God in someone's heart right now that is wrong, that, Lord, you would heal that right now. God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, haven't trusted in Christ, to be made right with you, that, Lord, by your spirit, you would just soften their hearts and help them, Lord, right now to surrender. But, Lord, that's my prayer for all of us, that, Lord, we would surrender knowing you're good and you're trustworthy and you're after our joy. We love you, God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.